Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of the Odo Mentor Podcast. We have made it to 2021, and I'm excited to bring you more episodes providing mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All of the opinions and views expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests. Let's get to it. Season 3, Episode 4, Selecting an Otolaryngology Practice. My guest today is Dr. Brian Herman. He completed medical school at the University of Iowa and then did an otolaryngology residency at St. Louis University. He then completed a fellowship in pediatric otolaryngology at the Washington University in St. Louis. After fellowship, Brian joined a private practice in Atlanta for 14 years. He then decided to pursue academic medicine at the University of Colorado. He has two teenage boys and has an interest in endoscopic ear surgery. All right. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So tell me about your career path. How did you get into otolaryngology? How did you decide to be a pediatric otolaryngologist? Well, I've always liked kids, and that was my primary interest in medical school. I looked at pediatrics. And I looked very hard at uh, pediatric surgery for a while. And then through a series of, I don't know, lucky random acts, I fell into otolaryngology and realized even with general otolaryngology that there's a lot of peds involved with that. So sort of the mix of clinic and surgery and the variation of what you see really got me hooked. And I was very fortunate with residency and fellowship to be able to see a lot of things in St. Louis and be around good people. And, and even through my time in private practice in Atlanta, the way things are set up there, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta has two hospitals. They have an academic hospital and then they have a private practice hospital. So I had a freestanding tertiary care pediatric hospital that allowed me to see a lot of interesting things along the way. So with that experience and then relocating to Colorado a couple of years ago, I've been able to continue to have a really interesting career with lots of rare and not so rare things that challenge me, but I've been very happy with, with the path. I never thought I'd live in the South and I didn't necessarily plan on living in Colorado, but I'm really happy that it all turned out the way it did. Well, your career trajectory, your training trajectory, I should say, suggests that you're from the Midwest. Is that? I grew up in Northern Illinois and went to the University of Iowa. So I, my wife is from Iowa, and that's where I thought we would be, you know, surrounded by the cornfields. You know, I still enjoy it, and we still go back and see family. But we have family here and across South Dakota, Nebraska, and Colorado, and Illinois and Iowa. So this episode is really about private practice and kind of looking at what you should be asking, looking at joining a practice. So when you joined private practice in Atlanta, how did you assess different groups? I'm assuming you interviewed at more than one place. Yes. So when I was coming out of fellowship in 2004, I interviewed with both academic and private practice groups. Many of the questions that are asked up to a point are the same, whether it's academic, hospital-based, or private practice. But when focusing on private practices, 
um, because they're, they're smaller groups and they're small businesses for all intents and purposes, each practice can have its own unique brand of function in terms of how the practice is set up in terms of partners, the overall ownership of the practice, as well as what they do with employees, what kinds of patients are seen, how call is handled. Large groups such as hospitals or universities will have a very standard way of handling things, but no two private practices are the same in terms of how those details are handled. So when examining private practices, the overall structure of the practice is important. The people are critical to how the practice is run. And then there are things on from a business standpoint, so positioning of the clinics or offices, the hospitals that are used, how volume is strategically looked at from a practice standpoint is, is not just the clinical details, but it's also business details. So what questions do you think are critically important to ask? So I think the most important thing when looking at a private practice is not just the physicians, but all the people in the practice, making sure that the physicians that you partner with or eventually partner with are people that you like, that you can see having a good long-term relationship with is important. I think that there are people within the practice, for example, I'll use an office manager, practice manager, schedulers, medical assistants, audiologists, a number of people within the practice also can make your life much easier as a physician, whether you're an employee or whether you're a partner. And those people and the relationships you build with them are as important as the people you may partner with. Some of the people I miss the most are the OR nursing people and people in the clinic uh, that I had in Atlanta. Very good people. You develop good friendships with them. And that's what you're looking for from a people standpoint. From a structure and the practice standpoint, I guess I'd start with offices. So you want to know that your offices are owned by the practice are busy. You want to Also ask which offices you would be working in to get a sense of how much travel that you would have on a daily basis. You want a good work-life balance. You don't want to be traveling all across town all the time, both to get to the hospital, but also for clinics. You don't want clinics halfway across town from one another. And you want to know that they're positioned in good markets. For example, that growing population, Uh, insurance mixes are important. You can use the demographics of the surrounding location as sort of a proxy for insurance mix. You want to know you have a good chance to succeed both clinically and financially when you're joining a group. So office location, infrastructure, equipment, and the people are important with that. Even though the practice may be separate from the hospital, it's nonetheless very important to know what the hospital resources around you What hospitals will you work at? Is it a pleasing environment to work in? Is the proper equipment and expertise there to be able to do more advanced surgeries that you've been trained in? What are the EMR systems, both of the practice and the hospital? Most likely, they're not the same. 
how many EMRs you're going to need to learn, maybe based on how many hospitals you're covering. That's important as well. And then along the way, from an employed physician standpoint, getting the details on what the compensation package for employees is, and then learning details about how the partnership with the physicians and the private practice is also important, even though that may not be the first step in joining the practice as the employee contract would be, knowing what the long-term financial relationship is, is important and should be asked during the interview process. So is it critical to meet with every single member of the practice before you sign? So what I'm thinking of is these very large groups what if you've got this multi-specialty group or what if you've got this very large group? How critical is it to meet every single practice partner? Well, that's a good question. I never looked at a large multi-specialty group. So while in that context, I would say it's probably really difficult to meet with everybody and certain medical disciplines may be far removed from otolaryngology and, and may not be relevant to the function of that. I looked mostly at pediatric laryngology practices. So in that regard, smaller groups, for sure. I think it's really critical to meet with everybody within that type of a group. You should meet all the physicians, both partners and employees. In a multi-specialty group, I think you should meet with everybody that may impact how your practice functions. So not just otolaryngology, but maybe some of the other subspecialties or specialties that may be referral sources or maybe common consultant partners with the otolaryngologist practice would be very important. And if there is somebody that legitimately should meet with a potential candidate and is not, uh, the candidate's not given access to that, it raises questions as to why. I think that being able to ask multiple people the same set of questions really allows for a consistent or inconsistent picture to be built on what really is happening behind the scenes with the practice. Just as interviews are sort of a courtship and you're putting your best foot forward, so to speak, they are as well. And if there are things that are hidden the varied answers that you get from people to the same questions really can provide some good insight. So if, if people are not permitted to talk with a candidate, that would really, you got to wonder why. And if people have left the practice, then you have to ask why and potentially contact those people if given permission to do so. Yeah. How do you broach that, those sticky situations? Like It's a tough one because you're in a vulnerable position. But that being said, you have to ask those questions. I think you do it in a respectful way, of course. But at the same time, I think a candidate should have the wherewithal to say, I need to know the answer to this, not to necessarily draw judgment. I need the information. And so, you know, you can start with maybe asking a broad lead in question for something. But at the same time, to look at it from the other end, if the physicians who are interviewing a candidate know that there's a potential issue, they are expecting to be asked that question and probably have an answer already formulated. And so while they may not necessarily volunteer to give answers to these questions right off the bat, 
they're more than likely prepared to answer when the question is posed. You know, you can ask sort of a tangential question. We'll use malpractice as an example. You can ask, like, how is malpractice coverage handled? You could ask questions just for general information, such as, does your malpractice costs go up if there are lawsuits? Has that happened in the past? And has anybody been sued lately, you know, as a way of having a series of questions getting eventually to what you want to know? But there are sensitive subjects in every practice. No practice is going to be without sensitive subjects. And so, you know, you can ask questions about what are the long-term plans for the partners? In other words, is what you're looking at something stable or are half the partners going to retire in the next few years and it's going to turn over very quickly? And that also brings in questions that you can ask about what are the partnership details? What is the buyout? What is the buy-in? And what is, for example, goodwill and things like that? Things we'll get to in just a little bit. But details that are important to you past employment when you want to become a partner, which are very relevant to determining whether a practice is right for you or not. Have there been prior physicians who have come as employees who have decided not to stay and why? Details regarding the financial arrangements. Practices that want to be straightforward, practices that want to have new physicians come in and stay and be valued partners should be very open to these types of questions. And so when practices are not being straightforward, that's when the alarm bell should go off. Yeah, because I think we forget sometimes that recruiting a new physician into a practice is an expensive endeavor on the part of the practice, right? So, you yes. know, they they want you to stay. <clears throat> Otherwise, they wouldn't be looking and spending this much time courting you, like you said. So, yeah, you need to remember that as well. So, on either either time that you joined a new practice, what did you learn after you joined that surprised you, if anything? You know, that's a good question. So, in my situation, I had two interviews. I had an initial interview and then I had a second interview. The initial interview is where you go and look at the nuts and bolts of the practice. You see, is this group a group you can work with? Is the practice located in the right place? Is there a good long-term future with a good work-life balance? Do you see yourself fitting in? Those are the questions you ask on the first. On the second interview, and I will also add, these are also the questions the practice is asking themselves. Is this candidate somebody that they could see working with them long-term? If the answer is yes to both of those, the second interview is where the more pointed questions, if you will, are asked. More details regarding compensation, partnership, the more sensitive subjects. And that is the time where you ask those sort of sticky type questions. They should be comfortable that you are sincerely interested in joining the practice and you're wanting to do your due diligence, and they should respect that. They should also not hide things or appear to be hiding things when asked those more difficult, sensitive questions. There's an understanding of confidentiality within this, and there will be limits where physicians, partners will say, I, I can't 
describe this, but I can give you a range on what the part, you know, things like that. And that's reasonable. After getting to a practice, let's say you get a letter of offer, which basically details in a couple of pages what the employment contract will look like. Let's say you go through that process, you sign a contract, and you reach the practice. Two things, as with joining residency, you will see the personalities more as they interact with one another when you're with them. You will see how the personalities of the support people, you will get a sense of how the flow of the office, things that you during an interview you can glimpse but not really see. Things that you will start to want to know about and are becoming more important in terms of an employee physician also have to do with running a small business and looking at the financial arrangements of the partners and the overall financial trajectory of the practice. Is it growing? Is it being successful? Are there any issues? And hopefully with that process, you transition to being a partner. As a partner, you're an owner. Usually what that means is you're an owner of the practice. You have a vote on what happens with the practice's future, strategic decisions, et cetera. And that is eye-opening. From a partner standpoint, you get to see how to manage people as well as the equation for reimbursement for your compensation is different than as an employee. As a small business owner, instead of having a set salary and bonus that an employed physician would have, your compensation is really based on practice profit. So you do everything to maximize the income coming in while also trying to control costs. And you work very closely with a practice manager on being able to control overhead. Those are the things you learn that you have no idea about when you're going through training. That's an on-the-job learning session. All those things are very important. And it's worth mentioning and discussing, but until you're in the midst of it and it's relevant to your daily structure, that uh, you really understand it. Yeah. So talking about financial compensation structures, so what are the most common compensation structures present in different private practices? From an employee perspective, usually the offer will be in the form of either a salary or a salary and bonus structure. And I would say the latter is the, by far and away the predominant sort of package that's offered. So salary is basically a set amount that you are paid monthly. The bonus structure is a target of productivity that can be measured in terms of dollars that are brought into the practice. RVUs, which are relative value units, which are a measure of clinical work done. Every clinic visit, every surgery, every procedure in clinic has a value that's assigned to it. And that's worth a certain amount of money as far as CMS is concerned. And with that, the practices sometimes use that as their measure of productivity. If you get above a certain dollar amount, a certain RVU, certain patient amount, number of patients seen. Every practice is different on what they're using as their measuring tool for productivity. But the bonus is structure is still similar in terms of once you hit this threshold, then you get a certain percentage of the profit from that work. So using me as an example, 
I was offered a year and a half. I started in July of 2004. So in a year, a year and a half for employment, my bonus structure started six months after I arrived and it was over a 12 month period. Mine was set up so that collections, dollars coming in at past a certain point, I would collect a percentage of that money and that would be paid at the end of my employment. Relevant questions I asked when interviewing was, have any of the previously employed physicians been able to reach that target? If they give you a threshold that's impossible to reach, then that's pointless. And you don't want to have practice try to to be somewhat dishonest in that regard. So can physicians reach that? What would an expectation, reasonable expectation for a bonus amount be at the end of that term? And how much work is required to reach that bonus? Is it what is templated by the practice in a normal day, or does it require a heroic amount of work past what is normally templated? Because you want to know if the work-life balance and reaching the bonus threshold is reasonable. Yeah. And in addition to the salary and bonuses, I'm assuming there's, you know, retirement and health insurance and kind of other benefits that go along with that as well. There are. And the important thing to distinguish is salary and total compensation, because those words are used interchangeably. But as I understand them, your take-home pay, if you will, is salary. Bonus can be included in that. They don't include or shouldn't include your benefits. So the cost of health insurance, cost of malpractice insurance, things like that may be considered part of your compensation but not your salary. And you don't want to be have a practice say your total compensation is $400,000 and you find out that 80 of that is taken up in benefits and your take-home pay is actually not what you thought it would be. But in terms of the benefits, health insurance, malpractice insurance, disability insurance, and then Some practices will have other things such as car lease, phones, et cetera, as part of it. Vacation is considered a benefit, so you should ask how many weeks of vacation. Is there administrative time built in? Time away from clinical work built into the week that's not considered vacation is a reasonable thing to ask. And then profit sharing and 401k retirement benefits are also part of this. Most private practices will have a 401k, but most also have a profit sharing component, which means that the profit that the practice generates, a certain percentage is put into retirement. And that is both for physicians who are employed, physician partners, but also other employees within the practice. The practice can set up the formula on how much can go to which classification of employment. So in other words, a partner physician may be in a different class than an employee physician and other employees. But profit sharing is an important component of the benefit package for physicians, and it's definitely worth asking. There are limits on that, of course, and that's important to know, but want to say like at least for me as an example, the profit sharing 401k component, uh, the legal limit is up to around $60,000 a year, something like that. Yeah. And also vesting comes into that, right? So 
I remember my first job, you had to be there for three years, 36 months to meet your vesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's important to ask as well. My practice, it was 20% per year. So it was a five-year plan. Vesting is the amount of profit sharing that becomes yours permanently over time. So if you're vested 20% per year and you leave at year three, you only get to keep 60%. The other 40% of profit sharing does not go with you in your 401k. It gets taken back into the practice. Right. So can we go back to RVUs a little bit? Because I know as a resident and as a med student, I had no idea what an RVU was. And I really only figured that out after I started practice. Because yes, a lot of practices use net profit uh, as your incentive, but a lot of practices also use RVUs as your incentive. So RVUs are short for relative value units, which are determined by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They are used by insurance companies as well as CMS for determining how much work a clinician has done and therefore how much they should be reimbursed. So there is an RVU value, if you will, for every clinic visit, for every procedure done in clinic, for every surgery, for inpatient visits, for consults. Basically, every aspect of clinician work can be broken down into an E&M evaluation and management versus procedure RVU. Multiple procedures, such as sinus surgery, have multiple RVUs, and there are also rules regarding when adding these together, how much you can add. Now, private practices are wonderful at being able to know these rules, and the business or billing department of a practice, hospital, et cetera, know these rules and have coders that are able to determine that. So the physician should be aware of what an RVU is. And also, in terms of documentation, that's very important to know that you're billing appropriately. But in terms of submitting the bill and reviewing things, there are always people who double-check the work, as per should be. From a physician standpoint, you want to be as time-efficient and productive as possible. And so what that means is that you want to make sure when billing that you are documenting properly to be able to receive the maximum credit for a clinic visit or a procedure added into the clinic visit, but you also do not want to run a risk of overbilling. There are penalties associated with that, particularly for Medicare, Medicaid, and you have to be your own policeman, so to speak. You have to do what you feel is right, not what other people in the practice may or may not be doing. You don't want to get into a situation where people are overbilling and talking new physicians into overdoing it. At the same time, leaving money on the table by underbilling to be safe is selling yourself short, so to speak. And so knowing the rules is going to be your best defense in terms of being able to appropriately bill, get the most money for your work, and be able to be efficient with your time relative to the money you're making. So if you're deciding that you want to become a partner, you enjoy your first couple of years of of being somewhere uh, in a practice, what should you ask about that? And what does that timeline typically look like? Most practices 
will vary in terms of time to partnership. It can be as short as six months. It can be as long as two or three years. Some practices also have permanently employed physicians as a component. And so there's a lot of variability. But when discussing partnership as a prospective employed physician, as a candidate, um, time to partnership is important. While making a decent living as an employee is important as a physician, the real goal is to know how much you'll be making as a partner per year, because that's where you'll most likely be making more money, but also you'll be hopefully spending the majority of your career as a partner as opposed to an employee. So you want to know the structure at some point during your interviewing process of what the partners are doing for their compensation. Is it a communistic model where everybody's money is dumped into one pot and divided equally? Is it a model where we always refer to it as eat what you kill, where every person is able to be independent of their partners in terms of the money they make? They share overhead, but the harder they work, the more money they make. There are also hybrids of that where certain aspects or costs are shared and others are individually attributed. So, for example, things that are fixed overhead, meaning costs that you have regardless of whether you you are part of the uh, using the practice to a high degree or a low degree, such as rent, insurance coverages, employee costs, et cetera, are fixed overhead costs. Usage of APPs, audiologists can sometimes be proportionately allocated, where if a physician is working twice as hard as another partner, and let's say using a nurse practitioner twice as much that they pay twice what the other physician is to cover the nurse practitioner costs. So there are variations in there. I think what you're looking for is to determine that there's a fair system in place I think it is reasonable to ask higher users to pay more of the costs that they are taking advantage of to create income over somebody who's not. At the same time, you also want to be looking for models that benefit one physician disproportionately over another. For example, a communistic model that is kept in place because a senior partner who is working half-time is bringing in compensation equal to somebody who's working full-time. You want to make sure that you're not going to find yourself in a situation like that. So those are the reasons why knowing the partnership compensation model is important even prior to signing a contract as an employee. So what types of clauses are also present in your contract? So for example, when I came to Colorado, there was a non-compete which said that I, if I left the university, I can't work within 50 miles of the university so that I'm not drawing patients away from the university system. So there are going to be a number of clauses in any medical contract. Some of these will be referenced in a letter of offer as well. The main clauses that you're going to want to focus on is termination clauses. So essentially what happens if the contract is determined to be just not able to continue by either the employed physician or the practice. So there are 
termination with cause and termination without cause. Termination with cause means that the employee, the employed physician is in error and the practice is forced to terminate the employed physician's involvement with the practice. Without cause means that the practice has decided to terminate the employed physician without having reason to do so, that they've decided we just don't feel like this is going to go forward and therefore we're going to terminate you. The legal ramifications of that may be very different if you're fired with or without cause. With cause, there are usually penalties involved for the employed physician. And without cause, there really shouldn't be. If the practice decides not to maintain employment of an of a physician and the physician has done nothing wrong, that should not be punitive on the employed physician. And so looking at those, how those are described in an employment contract is really important. Non-compete are also called restrictive covenants. So what that involves is if a person leaves the practice or is fired from the practice, what does that mean in terms of the ability to set up shop across the street? Most practices and hospitals will have a restrictive covenant that details a distance away from each clinic or hospital that the terminated physician cannot practice closer to, for example, five miles, 50 miles, things like that. Larger entities such as hospitals and universities can use a larger radius than private practices can do. But the important thing to know is that most of the hospitals or surgery centers are going to be within that radius. And so not only does it make it difficult for a terminated physician to set up an office, you know, nearby the old practice, it may also influence the ability to practice in certain hospitals or in surgery centers as well. So those are important things to know. End of employment terms or clauses are also, if let's say, using me as an example, I worked for my old practice for the year and a half, the term of employment, I decided along the way that I was not going to partner with the practice but wanted to finish out my year and a half. So the, in other words, the I wasn't fired, but the contract ends after a year and a half. What does that mean? Are there restrictions on my ability to practice in town if I worked the full length of the contract, but did not uh, continue on past that point? Are there non-competes associated with that, et cetera? And does that affect any of the hospital or surgery center ability to practice in those. Repayment of legal fees, funds, things like that are also involved in these contracts, and that's usually related to termination with cause. So if an employee who's a physician is is terminated, all of the practice costs to bring them that physician into the practice are going to need to be reimbursed by the terminated employee. That's often included in these contracts. There are also details in contracts regarding call and work expectations and things like that. My bottom line when looking at contracts, so using me as an example, once again, I had a two-page letter of offer that included many of these contracts. 
which translated to a 36-page contract. Getting a lawyer with experience in these types of contracts is very important. You do not want to try to negotiate these on your own. Many of the phrases that you would interpret one way have a legal meaning that's different, and you need a lawyer who can explain this in great detail. It's also very helpful to be able to use the lawyer as your bad guy. You want to maintain a good working relationship with the physician partners and the practice you want to join. But if there are legitimate sticking points, you want the lawyer to be the one to, to bring that up, not yourself. And so those are kind of a, a brief examples of the clauses. Yeah, and it's also really important to have a lawyer that's practicing in the state of your contract, because a lot of times you won't have a job in the same state as your residency training, but you need to use a lawyer who is aware of the state legislation as well. Yes, exactly. So if you had to do it over, would you choose the same path? Would you become a otolaryngologist and would you do private practice again? Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it's, so I looked at both private practice and academics coming out of fellowship and not that there was anything wrong with academics at the time. Um, I seriously considered a university position first before I went with private practice, but and private practices are very different from one another as well. And so I can speak from my perspective that the 14 years that I spent in private practice was a great experience. And I had the good fortune of working with great people. I am still friends with them. I did. I left for reasons that I wanted to broaden my career and do things I couldn't do in private practice. And academics is perfect for me in the second half of my career, but in the first half, private practice was was the right choice. So that may not be the standard route a lot of people go, but at the same time, I got to see a lot of unusual things. I learned to be efficient with my time, learned a lot about the business side of practice. We looked at hospital acquisition, so I got to see that side of it as well. And then with academics, I get to focus on other things that interest me now. So it's not a definitely not a, a standard route of academic medicine, but I wouldn't trade it at all. I would do exactly the same thing. And it's that time in private practice where I run into the same clinical problems without a good solution over and over and over has helped fuel my drive for doing the research I'm doing now to try to overcome some of these hurdles and try to advance medicine in, I guess, the ways that I was frustrated before. I like the teaching and I always miss that. And I'm glad I can do that again. Yeah. Well, and the residents in our program appreciate your teaching. They, mm -hmm. they love to work with you. So that's great. Yeah. So you have two teenage boys. If one of them comes to you after college, uh, during medical school, maybe they go to that, they say, Dad, I want to become an otolaryngologist. What would you say to them? Oh, medicine's changed so much since I was uh, looking at this. My mother was an internal medicine physician, and so I got to see some of that. She started medical school when I was eight, and so I got to see that. And as I went through my childhood into college, 
I went into engineering. I was like pretty far away from any thoughts of medicine. And then I drifted back into the biology, into the physiology. And it was actually physiology from an engineering perspective is kind of fascinating and really got me hooked into thinking about medicine. From a discipline standpoint, if I had to pick a field, otolaryngology is super strong. Uh, it is a great field to be in. And from a lifestyle standpoint, offers so many advantages over many of the other areas. Not to say that they're not worthwhile, but from my perspective, otolaryngology is a tremendous field to be in. So if one of my sons, who currently is looking at law, uh, decides that he wants to be in medicine and wants to be in otolaryngology, I would wholeheartedly support that. But it requires a lot of work to get in and a lot of studying. But it's really worth it. It really is. Great. Anything else you want to add? I think the last thing I would like to say is, um, well, two things. We didn't really talk about buy-ins. We should do that. So second interview, the conversation of partnership should also revolve around buy-in. There are a couple important things with that. Number one is what? how is the value of the practice determined? So there are things called hard assets, which are everything the practice owns, microscope, endoscopes, office space, et cetera. The valuation of those is part of it. The uh, second is goodwill. Some practices will say, and then there's a goodwill component because of the reputation of the practice, et cetera. The third issue is accounts receivable. Some practices will use accounts receivable in the value of the buy-in. It is important to negotiate that to, if you can, to involve hard assets only. Goodwill is a means of inflating the buy-in. And while that was commonplace decades ago, in this era, it is less so. And older partners may not understand that, but at the same time, you don't want to pay extra just because someone else determines that you need to. That's worth a discussion. Accounts receivable is a term used for the money an employee has billed and will be collected, but hasn't been collected yet. As everybody knows, there's usually a two-month, three-month delay in some of the bills being paid from the insurance companies. And when you finish your term of employment and transition to partnership, you want to know where the money from your previous efforts is going. You certainly do not want that added to the value of the buy-in and have your work add to the cost of your buy-in. That's important. Now, it is common for practices to say any money coming in after you finish your employment comes to the partners. It's a way of padding some profit into the partners to make up for the costs of paying for the employed physician to come on board and early in their term of employment. That isn't necessarily palatable from an employee physician standpoint to lose tens of thousands of dollars, but it is also commonly done. So there are going to be battles to pick and choose. But goodwill would be something that I would emphasize as if I had to over accounts receivable for things you want to avoid. 
And the last thing is going to be, you know, on, this all boils down to the people that you're joining. You can have contracts that have some potential problems, but if you have good people that are working with you, ultimately these things will work out. That's what you want to find is a good work-life balance with a good group of people that you can see a good long-term relationship with. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today, Brian. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, give it five stars and leave a review. Okay, let's dance.